Welcome to Grace Community Church. If this is your first time, we extend to you a special welcome. We're so glad you chose to worship with us today here at Grace. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder. Uh, if you didn't make the connections, Chloe Ray, who we heard on that video's father, is Thomas Ray, who is one of our members and also uh, president of Amazing Grace Adoption. So you'll be seeing about them and our mission Fair, several of you have uh, been blessed with the ministry of Amazing Grace Adoption, so it's very near uh, to our hearts. Well, I need to ask, did anyone, anyone watch Designated Survivor this past week? Yeah. All right, three or four people. So let me skip those two pages. and uh, <laughs> Finally, Jack Bauer is president and we can rest easy. That's right. Well, in our imaginations, anyway. Uh, I, I, you know the concept behind designated survivor, right? I mean, every year when the president gives his State of the Union address, um, everybody who is in a position of political power is in the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol. You've got the president, the vice president, all the cabinet members, Supreme Court justices, Senators, congressmen, everybody is there except for one person who is listed as the designated survivor. It's a low-level cabinet uh, officer in this case, or one of the cabinet heads, uh, in this case, one who was about to be fired the next day. This person is set aside in a secure location just in case a catastrophe happens and all people in the presidential line of succession afforded by our Constitution, are killed. You're not going to believe this, but that's exactly what happened <laughs> on Wednesday night. The thing blew up, and everybody is done except for our designated survivor. Now, look, I'm a political junkie. I have long been fascinated with this notion of designated survivor. I mean, I've often thought... What would it be like? I mean, just wonder who it is, wonder about this person. All of a sudden, he's president of the United States. You would think that this person would be someone very high up in government. You would be wrong about that. It, look, it's, it's, it's low man on the totem pole. <clears throat> no doubt there would be a capable person to fulfill the position. But he or she would have absolutely no expectation whatsoever of that night being sworn in as President of the United States. Tom Kirkman, who is Kiefer Sutherland's character as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, was sworn in as President of the United States wearing a hoodie, for goodness sakes. The man's wearing a hoodie. I thought Tom looked really spiffy up here in that suit. We don't get to see it. I usually see him in a hoodie, not in a suit. So, so it's not a very sanctimonious beginning for the President of the United States, but Americans love, we just love the fantastical notion of an ordinary person as President, so this plays very well. Now, you've got to understand that someone who is Secretary of uh, Department of Urban Housing and Development is not an ordinary person. This is a very skilled individual, but nonetheless, when you... Look at all the others and you see all of this power. You think, ah, this is sort of, a, 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 of an ordinary person. And so the transfer of power in that very casual nature, I'm sure, would resonate very strongly with a lot of Americans. Do you ever wish that we had more pomp and circumstance in our country? I mean, look, on Christmas morning, Allison, the Kinseys, other strange people in our church will get up and watch the Queen's speech from England. You know, it's, or they get up at 4 o'clock to watch the royal wedding. She's like, you want to watch it? I'm like, yeah, later. Uh, <laughs> not at 4 in the morning. Uh, but just joking, look, that, I think it's awesome that they do that. I really do. I, they, I love this, this structure and the, the importance attached to these People who are in office as public servants. How, how, and of course the king and queen, they were born that way, but uh, how important are inductions to clubs and organizations for your children? It's a big deal, right? That's why we have kindergarten graduations. Um, 
How important are Eagle Scout ceremonies and college graduations? They're a big deal. Retirement parties. I was at a really cool U.S. Air Force retirement ceremony this week for Marge Sager, Major Sergeant. Good grief. How did I get Major Sergeant Daniel Hopkins, who is here with us today. What a man. What an awesome, I just kept, I sat there with a smile on my face the whole time and thinking, you know, these guys look like they're in middle school, but I really feel good about the safety of our country. I mean, Daniel was retiring, he looks like he's in high school, not middle school, but not much difference. Ceremonies can be a pretty big deal, even in our land of equality and everybody gets a trophy. Today is our second and final week of examining the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, although we're incorporating verses 16 and 17 also for context. Look, you think it's a big deal for an ordinary person to be thrust into a position of power, political power here or anywhere in the world? It is nothing compared to what happens when the Holy Spirit of God baptizes us into the body of of Christ. Nothing like when we are commissioned for service by our Lord. This morning as we examine our text, we're going to find an initiation like no other. Baptized into the name. A mission like no other. Go and make disciples. And then a Savior like no other. Jesus. Our text today Record some of the last words of Jesus before he ascended back to heaven. Not the very last words because he was in Galilee and not on the Mount of Olives. But these are some of the last words. And they were marching orders. Make no mistake, marching orders for his followers. And they were given more than once. And we get to take it all in this morning. It's our custom to stand for the reading of Scripture. So if you would please stand as we read Matthew 28. Verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, we just move from one thing to the other, and we do so with intention and purpose. Yet sometimes we need to just stop and drink in the impact of your word. As we talked about in Grace Connection class this morning, we cannot know you if you do not reveal yourself to us. Not only did you reveal yourself to us in Jesus, through Jesus. You have given us purpose for living, privileges, responsibilities like no other. And We pray as we acknowledge that you will be with us to the end of the age that we would live And full knowledge and understanding of who you are, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that our hearts would be set on fire. So we think about what you have done for us. And our privilege of sharing that good news to others. We pray it in the name of the one who humbled himself, became a man. Took upon himself the form of a servant was obedient to death, even death on a cross. We exalt and lift Him high in our hearts and in our midst. As Your Word is read, may we see Jesus. May our hearts be ignited to tell others. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Thank you and be seated. 
baptism. What do you believe about baptism? There are a lot of things in Scripture that people say, ah, well, you know, I kind of believe this way, I kind of believe that way. Most people have a pretty strong opinion about baptism. Most people realize that baptism is a big deal. At least certain aspects of baptism, elements of baptism, are a big deal. In many countries today, when a, when a family member acknowledges that he or she has, has become a follower of Jesus Christ, a family will do everything they can to talk him out of this decision. But when the decision to be baptized is made, it's too late after that. All contact is ceased. In fact, this person is now dead to our family. Lots of times when a person is baptized, it's almost like a death sentence upon themselves. Now look, we don't see too much violence or family members being ostracized over baptism here. Well, not too much anyway. Most don't, but some do. Absolutely they do. I imagine whatever you believe about baptism, you believe rather passionately. And I'm also going to guess that you pretty much believe what you've always believed about baptism. The first church you were in or the first mentor who was discipling you, helping you to grow in, in, in your walk with Christ. Just think about the controversy over baptism. I'm going to give you a partial list of the battles that believers wage with one another over this topic. And before I give you this extensive partial list about baptism, I want to report to you that the elders have been discussing a lot of these issues for a year and a half. Some issues more than others. Some were very settled on. Uh, but some more than others. And, I, I, and please know that we've been doing more than just talking about it. There have been booze and fist fights. No, I'm just kidding. None of that. <clears throat> we've been praying. We've been reading. We've been studying. We've taken this very seriously. And just about time we <clears throat> are ready to say, here we go. Someone will bring up a point and it's like, hmm, I hadn't thought about that. Let's do some study on that. I hope that you understand that we take our responsibility of searching the Scriptures very seriously. So today is not so much about answers as it is about asking the right questions. Uh, We have answers to some of those questions, but not all. First, what role does baptism play in the salvation of a believer? How would you answer that? Uh, Some people believe that if you're baptized, the act alone is enough to save you. We know that that's not biblical. I mean, I've talked to people and and tried to witness to them, and they said, look, 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 I've been baptized, I'm okay. There's no biblical support for that whatsoever. Some people believe baptism, if you've been baptized, even as an infant, you're covered. Others, in fact, a lot of people who have taken believer's baptism believe that they are covered, think that they're covered just because they've been under the water. I profess Christ, I've been baptized even though I'm living any way I want to live and I give no thought whatsoever, that covers me. Others believe that baptism has nothing to do with your salvation, is a mere picture of your relationship with Jesus. I'm going to guess that that's probably a majority of us have believed that for a big portion of our lives. Still others find, and that's assuming that most of you come from Baptist background, others find that salvation and baptism are so closely linked as to be significantly connected. There are several positions and variations, excuse me, several variations on each one of these positions. So let me be clear to you about what our church's position is and what our elders affirm that Scripture teaches. Being baptized means nothing if it is not accompanied by faith. Peter makes it clear. Baptism is not just a washing away the filth of the flesh. It's what God does on the inside of you. Furthermore, if you repent of your sins and you put your full trust in Jesus' death on the cross as sacrifice for your sins, you're saved. 
And if you die before you're baptized, then you're, you will go to heaven. I believe that. If, however, you refuse to be baptized or you delay, unduly delay your baptism beyond what your church encourages you to do, which is to be baptized sooner rather than later, then where's the evidence of the credible of a credible profession of faith because <clears throat> Scripture almost always talks about salvation and baptism in the same breath. It's part of who you are. It's like that great initiation ceremony. Talk more about that a little bit better. So, <clears throat> a little bit later. So here, let's move on to our second question. And all of this comes back into play. What role does baptism play in the relationship between the believer and his or her Lord? Is there spiritual benefit in baptism or is it only a symbol that indicates I'm following my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? It's obedience to his command but also uh, symbolic that I belong to him. Is there benefit to going to church and remembering your baptism? As ironically, many who were baptized as infants, I know a lot of Presbyterians, when they talk about going to church, they say, I remembered my baptism. They don't remember it literally, but they understood the significance of that baptism when they were just an infant. And they remember their baptism, and yet Baptists who go under after we're saved, and we decide to do that. Our parents don't decide it for us. We decide to do it. We'll never think about our baptism again. Is there benefit to remembering your baptism? That leads us to the next question. How old should a person be before being baptized? So here's the discussion that has received most attention as the elders have discussed baptism. As our constitution states, we will only baptize those with a credible profession of faith and we will only baptize by immersion. Should there be a minimum age uh, in which baptism is allowed for a child? I mean, should we baptize a child of any age as long as he or she is able to answer questions about gospel beliefs? When I hear... Baptists and Presbyterians, like if you've got, say you've got uh, Ligon, uh, Duncan Ligon. Did I get that right? Duncan Ligon. I was thinking Ligon Duncan. You know, it's one of those. Got Duncan Ligon. Ligon Duncan. Okay. My goodness. Getting old. That's Well, my wife told me not to say that anymore. I'm so sorry, honey. I forgot about what you told me. Uh, uh, so Ligon Duggan's on a panel with, um, with, with Mark Devers and Mark Dever, and he says, <laughs> Devers. Mark Dever, and he says, uh, look, you Baptists are practicing pedo baptism, pedo being child or infant baptism. You Baptists are practically practicing that now. I mean, you're baptizing them, what, three years old, four years old? So there's some debate as to whether or not you should baptize a child who is so young. Look, I, I'm going to say this, I say this all the time in small groups, I ought not to even in small groups, much less in, in, in this kind of setting. My understanding is that kids don't think conceptually until they're nine years old. When my daughter Autumn asked Jesus into her heart, you know what she thought? She fully expected Jesus to walk through the door of our house, take her head back on a hinge, come into her heart, and then replace it. I said, wow, you made the decision thinking that. That's a pretty serious decision to follow Jesus. I might doubt my own salvation. I ain't doubting your salvation, you know, if you think that that's the case. Um, but kids don't think uh, conceptually. So um, there's a question, how young should they be baptized? And it's not as easy as you think. It, I know you have, like I said, you have very strong opinions. And, and you may want to say, well, of course, how can you deny? 
it, it's, it's, it's a question worth considering. And, and if you're paying attention, you're going to find that these following questions bring even more questions that we don't have time to consider. So the next one is this. Should there be training for baptismal candidates? Well, yes. Look, even if you believe that you must be baptized when you make a profession of faith to be saved, I don't believe that. I believe that people who do believe that are saved. I didn't used to think that, but I do believe that. I get, there, I get the understanding of why you think baptism is that closely associated with a profession of faith in Christ. So even if you believe that, it should be post-training. When you look at church history, the church has been all over the map on baptism. They started out dunking, and then they said, look, a lot of people who are... And, and by the way, um, <clears throat> baptism... Tizo, the Greek word, means to immerse fully like a cloth that's put into a vat of dye. It is fully, completely immersed. And that's what the early church did, and they did it immediately. But a whole lot of people were being baptized and then denying their profession, and especially under persecution, a lot of them would say, well, I was just kidding about that baptism. And the church said, look, we need to have some evidence of this. We need to have some proof. So two or three uh, years would go by. One, anywhere between one and three years, they baptize once a year on Easter because we need to see credible evidence of this profession of faith that you have. And then, later on, I've never read this. I've never heard this, never seen it. I just speculate that the church said, you know, <laughs> you look at Scripture and you see how salvation and baptism are so closely associated. And there is a connection here between... <clears throat> Circumcision as a covenant, covenant sign in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. And if we baptize as infants, then, hey, everything's covered. And at a certain age, they make a commitment that, yes, I affirm my baptism. So I think that's how it happened. I don't know. Maybe I'm way off. But we do know this. The church practices, then the church practices, and then the church, by and large, practice the other. We need our children, we need our adults to understand what baptism We're working on that. And we're trying to work out the ages. I mean, can you imagine having a 5-year-old and a 12-year-old in the same class? So how do you do it? We, we do this already in our children's ministry, but we want to do it more specifically. And <clears throat> help people understand what this initiation into the Christian life is and how much it requires thoughtful preparation and understanding. Next, what mode of baptism should be performed? Immersion, sprinkling, pouring. If you've read our Constitution, if you've become a member, you know that we require immersion uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let me restate that. I did not state that correctly. We practice immersion in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as we talked about last week, one name. That's why we don't dunk three times. You know, some churches do that. Name of the Father, the Son, but that's one name, one baptism. So why would we accept into our membership those who were baptized only as infants? If this is what we state about what we believe, and this is all we practice is immersion, why would we accept infants or those who were baptized as infants? Look, many of you were baptized as infants and then later as adults. Sharon Herring was just a few weeks ago. She said, I want to express my faith publicly in this way. We affirm that. We applaud that. It is not, however, a requirement. Why not when it's so important? Well, the answer is that we respect the theology of those who understand that baptism replaced circumcision as a sign of the covenant relationship between God and His people. In the same way, circumcision marked a child is belonging to God, a male child. Now, baptism marks all children under the umbrella of God's covenant people. And as we talk about evangelism these coming weeks, I said this in the last week or two, but the most effective method of evangelism throughout the years is parent the child. 
That's where it happens. Most often is parents tell children about Jesus and they believe. Now, before you say that the idea of baptism being associated with circumcision is ridiculous, you should know that the majority of the people you're going to spend heaven with were baptized as infants. That doesn't mean they were right. We're right, of course, right? Got to. It doesn't mean that they're right. But again, before you reject covenant theology, paedo-baptism as unsupportable in Scripture, you should at least listen to and read what <coughs> theologians say about it, many of whom you would agree with on almost everything else. Except for this one thing. <coughs> almost all other points of theology. By accepting those who were baptized as infants and who can articulate a credible profession of faith, we acknowledge that our differences all fall under the umbrella of Orthodox Christianity. It's like this huge umbrella. And we may have different ideas about baptism or about the use of the gifts of the Spirit or about the, the, all the particulars <clears throat> on the second coming. But we would not say a person is not a Christian because they don't agree with us about on one of these things that are the open-handed, not the closed-fisted doctrines, not the Trinity, not salvation by grace through faith. But the mode of baptism, the age of baptism, that's one of those. So, understand that. And look, I have no doubt that a lot of people have checked us out and said, really, you do that? I don't think this is a place for me. I get that. Really, you don't baptize infants? This is not the place for me. I, I get that. By only practicing believers' baptism by immersion, we so state our particular belief. This is what we believe. And this is how we practice it. The last question to consider is this. Is baptism something that I do for God? Or is it something that God does for me? Well, now... I thought I had it all figured out until this. You ask this question. Just the asking of the question makes your mind go in a lot of places, doesn't it? Same with the Lord's Supper when we partake. Is that something we do for God or is it something that He does for us? I'm going to say the answer is yes. Even those who are baptized as infants affirm their baptism later. But if it's something that God does for us, then it's bigger than just a work of obedience or a statement of my submission to the Lord, although it absolutely is that. If baptism is nothing more than an act of obedience on my part and a statement to the world that I belong to Jesus, then the answer is simple. Baptism is something that I do for God. But if God is at work in my voluntary submission to the waters of baptism, then I need to think more deeply about baptism. Let's again look at how our, approach, our text approaches baptism. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You remember last week? The preposition that follows baptizing them is ace, E-I-S, or into, baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now look, we can take people and put them underwater. We can say that we're baptizing them on the authority of the Lord and in accordance to His command. We are baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. But who is it? Or baptizing them in the name. Who is it that baptizes men and women, boys and girls, into the name? That would have to be God, wouldn't it? While I may make a decision to be baptized in obedience to Jesus' command as a symbol of my allegiance and submission to Him, I am unable to join myself to the name, as is indicated here. Being baptized into the name carries the same sense of our union with Christ as described in Romans 6, 3-5. Let's look at that for just a moment. Do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Wow, that union with Christ is such a blessing and so much bigger than most of us ever think about. Even if we say that salvation is by grace through faith, most of us see, say, but now i got to make it on my own. No, you know better than that, and you articulate better than that. But deep down, that's the way we live. Man, i got to get this thing done. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Furthermore, you might say, hey, Romans 6, that's a great text. It's not talking about water baptism, but rather it's referring to spirit baptism when the Spirit baptizes believers into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talks about us all being baptized into one body. The Spirit places us into the body of Christ. Interesting, um, at Tennessee Temple, where I went to school many years ago, um, a very Baptist institution, they would baptize, when the, when the pastor would baptize, he would use this text, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. But if you said, what do you think Romans 6 is referring to, water baptism or, or spirit baptism? It's all spirit, absolutely. Are you certain about that? Are you certain that Romans 6 is only about spirit baptism? I am certain of this. Paul is at the very least talking about spirit baptism. But most conservative theologians would say that he is also talking about water baptism. Look, there are lots of verses in Scripture in the New Testament that, that we Baptists tend to say, Oh, spirit baptism, spirit, spirit, spirit. Oh, okay, well, here's water right here, but... Spirit, you got to be careful about assigning too much meaning to water baptism. Well, here's one thing we do know for sure. Matthew 28, that's talking about water baptism. Baptizing them into the name, union with the Lord, the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. John Frame says this, baptism is a name-giving ceremony. Placing the name of God on us and marking us as those who belong to Him. On the basis of baptism, we are admitted into the church. Look, for years, you've heard me say it, lots of you. Especially when I'm talking to children. You know, I talk about baptism as like a ring, a wedding ring. What does this ring signify? That I'm married, that I belong to someone. So, if I wear this ring and I've not officially been married, am I married? No, no, baptism doesn't make you a Christian. If I am married and I don't wear the ring, am I still married? Yes, you are. That's how I, that's how I describe baptism. Look, it would be far better to say, Although it doesn't fully, no human analogies are going to make it all the way. It'd be far better to say that baptism is like a wedding ceremony. More so than a wedding ring. It's more than just a symbol. This is the deal. This is the initiation. This is where it all happens. It's an initiation like no other. At baptism, the believer is incorporated into a status with all the rights and privileges commensurate with that status. Baptism is initiation into the family. Participation at the Lord's table is the privilege and responsibility of family members. Understand this. Baptism is the initiation into the family. And if you're a family member, you get to participate at the table. That's one of the things the elders have decided. And so when we say baptized believers are invited to share in this table, understand that it's with this acknowledgement of Scripture. 
that baptism is the initiation. Communion is the privilege and responsibility of believers. When we are baptized, again, we are incorporated into a status with all the rights and privileges of that status. And that leads us to our second main point. And by the way, before I go there, let me just say, you're saying, okay, you may say, okay, if you say this, then what about that? If it's this big, why would you wait to have children baptized at a later point? It's a big discussion. Like I say, there are a lot of questions about this. It's, it's just not that easy. And in true American fashion, although I can promise you, this is people all over the world, according to their beliefs, we reduce this to the simplest form and say, here it is, that's the way it is. And, 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 and then we use scripture to support our thoughts about baptism. So now that I've thoroughly confused you, let's go to this next uh, point. A mission like no other. Go and make disciples. Now, if you're a clock watcher, uh, you're going to know that one of two things is in play. Either one, most of this sermon's about baptism, or two, oh boy, we're in trouble. Uh, so it's, rest assured, it's mostly about baptism. We're going to spend a few more minutes to consider the implications of our bapti- baptism by thinking about our mission and our Savior. Go and make disciples. Look, if we're going to affirm our baptism, we must do so with submission to the Lord, who commands us to make disciples of all nations without distinction. That is our mission. You know, I'm so grateful for David Calvert on multiple occasions. Um, just striking the right chord about the difficulties we're facing in the nation with racial tensions and the tensions between um, the disadvantaged and and the police or or, uh, not just just minorities. Look, there are a lot of poor white people who have some of the same struggles that um, other races have. Our differences... Create these tensions. And and look, I know, I know, I feel pressure all the time to speak to these things. And I know that some of you would like for me to take a very strong stand. Let me ask you this. Can you imagine that I would say something in a very strong, passionate way that would not create a lot of frustration and disappointment on one side or the other? We're we're divided as a nation. We're right down the middle. You can't hardly get any more divided than we are. You talk about percentages of the races. I want to tell you we're 50-50 on these issues. So, I want you to know I'm thinking about this all the time. I've spoken with two African-American pastors in in the Raleigh area about church leaders getting together and discussing this. We have differences that far exceed just the color of our skin. And how do you work through all of those things? Look, if I were to say discrimination in any form is sinful, you would agree. And then if I were to say violence is a response to injustice is sinful, so that I could say there is sin on both sides of the issues, you might agree, but really, what have I said? I probably haven't said what you'd like me to. Saying nothing is unacceptable to almost everyone. But if you insist that everyone agree with your version of right and wrong, you're in danger of losing sight of the gospel. The greatest injustice in history was when sinful men crucified the Lord of glory. I am not suggesting that we ignore injustice. Look, of all people, we have to call out Injustice, but we must also recognize that our primary mission as believers is to make disciples. Look, I've, I've, I have been blessed to travel all over the world. 
when I was growing up, I had, you know, the privilege of riding with my dad to Georgia. I think we got into Florida one time on the tobacco market. He was a tobacco man, and so he would go down to Statesboro, Georgia, and, you know, places like that. I, I got exciting places like Statesboro and somewhere in the middle of Florida, you know. Uh, with apologies to our Statesboro grads over here. Um, so... When I was a teenage hippie, I went to Love Valley in Statesville. I bet Jim Haycock loved Love Valley and long-haired hippies out there smoking dope and all that. That was me. First time I ever smoked dope was out there in Love Valley. Um, I never expected to travel a great deal. I just didn't. And I've been privileged to Travel all over the world. Some of that happens as a result of the merger of those two great world-class cities, Sydney and Fuquay Varina. I've told you that before, but, but I can tell you this. The general appearance, uh, 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 attitude about Americans, impression of others about Americans is not good. They think of us as arrogant, unsophisticated could care, just do anything that we want to do, go anywhere that we want to go. But I've also discovered this, that those same people love it when an interested American wants to interact with them. This uh, lead, Williford posted a article from the Gospel Coalition about evangelism last week. If you haven't read it, go back to the city, find where he posted it, and read it. Really good stuff. And he said, it's not my job as a believer to be interesting. I am to be interested. When you make the hot political issue of the day your mission in life, There are going to be a lot of people who applaud you and pat you on the back. And there will be others who despise your platform, if not you. It is much easier than you realize to lose your opportunity to share the gospel with your political opponents. Because they'll brand you just like most people brand Americans. And they don't want to hear from you. If you feel that God wants you to passionately stand for what you believe is just and godly, not only do I agree with that, I applaud that. But I implore you, please do so without assigning sinful motives, motives to not only those who are vocal in their view that is opposite to yours, but to those who remain silent on the issue. There are valid points on both sides of the issue where people are right div- divided right down the middle and it takes time to process. If you insist on Twitter-style discourse, you are going to get a Twitter-esque solution. And that's no solution at all. If all you want to do is, is shout your opponent down and and, and shame your opponent. And those who don't line up right beside you. What are you accomplishing? Look, how are we as a nation going to move forward like that? I don't know. I can tell you this. The kingdom of God is going to stop in its tracks if that's all you're doing. Because the kingdom is not moving forward. The Spirit of God is going to do what the Spirit of God is going to do. And the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. And the church is going forward. But my part in that church's advance is going to come to a halt. If all I'm doing is shouting. You know what? If our nation never gets past the differences that are dividing us today, the church has a mission. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. Now, let's see, probably, if we're talking percentages, I've offended about a quarter of you in baptism, a quarter of you in this one. Let me see if I can catch the other half in this last point. A Savior like no other Jesus. There's no way you can be offended by this. And that's the point, isn't it? 
How are people offended? When you show them Jesus. Well, that's not how my Jesus. That's the problem. He's your Jesus. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. Well, that's... Good, I think. Let me see. I'm cheap in percentages. Let me keep going. Most saviors <laughs> say, make yourself acceptable to me. And you will be saved. Most so-called saviors. Jesus says, in essence, it is impossible for you to attain salvation. You must die for your sins. But because of the Father's great love for you and my great love for you, I will die for you so that you might live eternally. Even though you die, you will live. We all die because of sin in the world and because of Adam's sin that's on us. Talking about it next week. Two families. Family of Adam, the family of Jesus. Two heads of the, of the families in the world. Jesus said, I died for you. And if you put your trust in him, if you repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus, you belong to him. What a privilege to be on mission for that kind of a savior who died for us that we might live. You know the irony about all the shouting that's going on. You'll probably feel differently 10, 15 years from now. And Part of it may be because of the shouting of the other people. After you get some distance from it, I, I get it. That's how we apparently are moving forward in our country. But when our focus is on the mission that God called us to, a lot of those other things will take care of themselves. They will in our, in our circles. Absolutely people will understand. We are for justice we are for the protection of all people in all offices. We love those things because Jesus loved us enough to die for us. And I am and only a child of His by His great mercy. And I want to share this beautiful word to you. Well, this, this, I, I, Jesus loves you. One of the characteristics of a disciple is that he obeys what his leader commands. There's something interesting here in the Greek. Observe in the English language. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you translates the Greek word tereo, which means to keep or to guard. If there is something that's very precious to me, I'm going to guard it. I'm going to keep it. If you say, I'll offer you a good price, you say, no, 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 I'm going to keep that. I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Oh, yes, I can, because this is that precious to me. Sort of the idea behind Tereo. It certainly has the idea of obeying. But far better that we obey because of the treasure that we have in Jesus and His words to us, what God has commanded us through His Son, Jesus. Far better to, to obey from a heart that is captivated by grace. And longs to please the one who means so much. Rather than to merely obey out of a sense of duty. Not that duty is a wrong motivation. It's just not the best motivation. It's part of it. We all have that place where we just do the right thing because it's the right thing. Not because we want to. We may in fact want to do the wrong thing. But love is a better motivation for obeying Jesus' words. Jesus will never disappoint you. Jesus, your Savior, will never forsake you. He will never fail you. You may not particularly like all of the structure of His plan for your life. Wait a minute, I didn't expect this. Wait a minute, I didn't want this and it's beyond my control. You may not like all of that. But he will always be right there with you. And if you, if you stay long enough at it, you will learn like Paul that it's a privilege to suffer with Christ. We have a special communion with him when we suffer. He is worthy of your love and your trust. Not just your obedience, but your trust. Your trust. 
Treasure His words as, as given to you in Scripture. All people, all ideas, all causes will ultimately fail. But not our Savior. Not our Jesus. He never will. Let's pray. One of the ways that we show compassion to the world is by sharing of our material blessings to those in need, whether they be in or out of the body. We share with those in the body because as we love one another well, that's how people know that we are disciples, His disciples, and they are attracted to Jesus. So on this last Sunday of the month, we take a benevolence offering that will go to help both those in our body and those outside our body. Father, as we come to you, we recognize that we are, as we've said in the last few weeks, only beggars helping others to find where the bread is, to know where bread is. Lord, anything good in our lives comes from you. Thank you so much for the gospel that tells us the bad news first, that we're sinners, but also the incredible, wonderful news that God made a way. And it's through Jesus and we exalt and magnify and glorify and lift him up this day, not only in our hearts, with our words, with our actions. Bless this offering and bless our time in your word and cause us, Lord, to love Jesus. And Lord, um, I will be praying this for a long time today as I already have been. Today and tomorrow. I know that many of my words today were difficult words on, on any number of levels for people to hear and receive and I don't expect everyone to agree with me by any means but may we in unity together exalt Jesus so that we can begin to move forward and as we go we thank you for the privilege of sharing Jesus in his name we pray Amen.